Guess what I've hated most about Trump's election? No, not the wall. Not the threatened tariffs or pulling out of the TPP. Not his wishy-washy hemming and hawing about repealing the important parts of the Affordable Care Act. No, it's been how, even though Trump keeps doing things that I don't agree with, I end up having to defend him because the coverage and response is so blatantly misleading and false. Nowhere has this been worse than with the recent ban on immigration. Facts and context have been irrelevant. And as a result of this, I end up defending Trump on a ban that I would normally be condemning as bad policy. Let me explain why. Trump's policy really does not change past administration's policies all that much. Between 2002 and 2015, the cap on refugees was somewhere between 70,000 and 80,000, with the number of actually admitted refugees often being far lower. With his executive order, Trump set the cap at 50,000. It's a decrease, but it's really not a radical change in refugee policy. Then the ban on immigration from seven countries was declared a Muslim ban, and hysteric declarations of the Statue of Liberty with tears in its eyes abounded. This is pure Trump bashing by people who play politics like it's a team sport for the most part. In 2011, the Obama administration blocked refugees from Iraq for six months and was met by silence by the same people currently blocking airports. Also, guess where that list of seven countries came from? People who visited Syria, Sudan, Iraq, Iran were denied waivers by the Obama administration in 2015, and Libya, Somalia, and Yemen were added to the list in early 2016. In other words, the Obama administration came up with a list. Trump just tightened the restrictions. But now I sound like I'm in favor of the refugee ban, which was exactly my complaint in the first place. I think it's a solution in search of a problem that actually causes a problem itself. In the 40 years between 1975 and 2015, 17 total terrorists from these countries were convicted of attempting to carry out an attack on U.S. soil. Zero managed to kill any American civilians. In other words, it's an odd list, even if you know where it came from. There is also growing evidence that Muslims in the U.S. are helping to reform Islam due to their moderate political views and social toleration. Also, the ban on people with green cards, who have already been fully vetted, from these seven countries entering the United States makes absolutely no sense, and the humanitarian consideration should not be dismissed either. But instead of talking about these things with the people I discussed this executive action with, I'm busy explaining to them the context. To my fellow libertarians and conservatives who do not support Trump, I urge you to be careful. Many of us are joining in with liberals anytime we see news stories making fun of Trump or those ridiculous stories from reputable news sources like CNN about how someone on Twitter trolled Trump. But we have got to come down on the side of journalistic fairness and media honesty, even with Trump. Because if, even if you don't support Trump, when he's gone, we'll be next. And we'll have no credibility to demand fact-based reporting and media fairness later if we're laughing along with everyone else every time we see a gotcha article about Trump. You're listening to Liberties and Policies because you can have both. Maintenance of a free society is a very difficult and complicated thing. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. But power must be restrained because no one knows who will next hold that power. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Hello 
and welcome to episode four of Liberties and Policies, post-inauguration edition. And welcome back, Andy. Thanks for having me again. All right, now this is the first non-bonus episode we will be doing with President Trump in office, and man, has he been busy. Well, busy doing things without Congress, you mean. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, now, even in a normal episode, it can be hard condensing everything into our usual time frame, but these past few weeks were so chock full of politics that we had to do some extra trimming, even with the bonus episode from last week. So we're not going to talk about Obamacare repeal this week, since you've already heard my thoughts on that in a previous episode, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to tackle that later on. Uh, also, Trump did take some actions when it comes to abortion policy, and as much as I'd love to debate Andy on abortion, we'll save that potential friendship ruiner for another week. Uh, so like the obedient lemmings we are, we're going to focus on the issue that's highlighted the news this week and last week, uh, immigration. So now, before we get into this topic, I think we need to get into a little bit of background about ourselves, since I think this week we're going to have a little more disagreement than usual. I'm a classical liberal, which is similar to libertarian, but libertarian doesn't perfectly describe my views. And also, I think libertarian has the connotation of being like an anarchist or an Alex Jones disciple for a lot of people. So it's easy to avoid. It's easier to avoid those connotations if you call yourself a classical liberal. Essentially, I believe in free markets and the importance of the individual rights to life, liberty, and property. Andy, is that true for you as well? Well, I don't really have as many qualms with calling myself a libertarian because I don't think of it in the Alex Jones anarcho-capitalist sense. Uh, there are those people out there. Uh, but even amongst libertarians, there's a lot of disagreement with regards to how far you go down that rabbit hole. It's the same for any r political identifier, really. I mean, the term conservative can mean anything from classical liberal all the way to alt-right neocon. Right. I mean, but the connotation exists for a lot of people, though. I mean, as wrong as it is, people assume one of three things if you call yourself a libertarian. One, that you're an Alex Jones-esque tinfoil hat kind of guy. Um... Two, a guy who lives that you're a guy who lives in a shack in the woods with forty guns, or three, someone who voted for Gary Johnson. To be fair, I voted for Gary Johnson, but I felt kind of sad after. As did I with a similar similar sense of sadness. But you know, that being said, while I'm not against using the term libertarian, I do like the term classical liberal better, and I'd love to reclaim it from the leftists that have stolen it. Yeah, I mean, amen to that. Um, but, I mean, the label doesn't really matter that much. It's just for reference. And anyway, each of us, though each of us are classical liberals or libertarians, whatever, now we came from opposite sides of the spectrum. And if we're being intellectually honest, I think it can sometimes influence how we approach certain issues. And it'll likely show in this episode. Right. So with that in mind, I was once a pretty strong conservative. And I'm a UC Berkeley grad who went through political rehab. Enough said there. Yeah, I won't. I won't. <laughs> say anymore um all right so let's talk about the refugee ban so i talked a lot about in the intro about the things wrong with the media coverage of the refugee ban i left out how organizations like cnn have been obsessively writing stories about peer, people tearfully saying how they might be separated from their families now i don't mean to sound callous but can we agree that this should not be the focus for how we make policy i mean I would say that the issue with a refugee ban is that you have a 1 in 3.64 billion chance of dying in a refugee terrorist attack, not the seventh story about refugees who are separated from their families. Not to suggest that this is irrelevant, but the line of argument utterly fails to address the reasoning behind the ban in the first place, which was the belief that the ban would protect Americans. That's fair. 
Uh, but I think in the scope of the big picture, CNN is marketing to liberals. That That's leftist liberals, not classical liberals. But, <laughs> yeah. um, liberals, despite their faults, though, are, are generally ca- categorized as people with significant empathy for other human beings, right? So I think it makes sense that CNN markets it that way, right? On the other hand, though, I mean, CNN markets itself as the most trusted name in news. And, you know, it gives us this. And I think... We both remember when that Malaysia Airlines plane went down right. and CNN just could not get over it. I mean, this is I have a personal vendetta against CNN in general, but I think with things like this, you know, I think this phrase has been so overused, but this is kind of why Trump won. I mean, refusing to to argue with the things that concern Trump voters and just making these emotional appeals that are just irrelevant to their concerns. But that being said, I think you did mention something in your intro that I think is is fair that um, you know, Obama deserved blame for his immigration policy. I mean, he he was known as one of the the most um, you know, active uh, administrations in deporting um, Ill- illegal immigrants, right? I mean, he's has done some good things uh, for for Im- immigrants who are in the in the U.S. Um, the the DACA, for example, even though that was done without Congress, right, was good for immigrants. It allowed them to stay here, right? Um, I don't think that we should try to justify what Trump is doing, right? I th- it's still anti-free market and bad for Americans overall. I think Obama deserves blame for, for his immigration policy, but Trump deserves his immigration policy to be analyzed with the same level of, of blame that we give Obama. Yeah, I mean, this is what my whole intro is about. I end up having to defend Trump when I want to be criticizing him. I mean, I don't agree with the refugee ban policy. I think it's bad policy, but... I end up talking about why, you know, it's not as it's not what people are saying it is. Right. So here's an opportunity for you to talk about the policy itself. <laughs> uh, the the issue is still in progress, but uh, recently the Ninth Circuit issued a unanimous ruling that uh, upheld a federal judge's previous decision to block Trump's policy. Right. I mean, it's not a dead horse because the issue can still go to the Supreme Court, but it's a horse that's been given two tranquilizers already and is about to finally get put out of its misery. Um, the Immigration Act of 1965 clearly states that the president is not allowed to refuse to grant visas to immigrants coming to live in the United States on the basis of nationality. There's just no legal basis for this order. And, I mean, that's really what happens when Trump does things without Congress, right? One would like to think, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, let, let's go ahead and get into the, the other more controversial part about this, the the idea that trump wants to prioritize christian refugees from the middle east right um now the idea kind of makes sense right um you know they are a bit more heavily persecuted than muslims in the middle east i mean isis is um there has been cases of isis you know decapitating these people but you know if i'm being a bit blunt right i don't think that it's fair to weigh the fear of isis decapitating you versus the fear of being blown to smithereens in a drone strike right uh, i i i think that it's it's silly to try to weigh how much fear these refugees have for their lives blunt indeed um so i'm gonna play devil's advocate here since in the past christians do seem to have received the opposite treatment that they're receiving under the order under this executive order um for example syrian christians constituted 10 percent of the syrian population before the war but they have represented only 2.6% of the refugees that the United States has accepted. This is despite them being targeted, and like you said, um, in, they've been targeted, but this is what Pope Francis has called a genocide. 
Um, I don't know the details on that, but those statistics do seem odd, right? I think there there's fair room uh, for the for the statistics. I mean, it does seem a little strange that there's only two point six percent of the refugees being Christians, but I do think that you know this is going back to what we were saying earlier about separating the blame from Trump for Trump from the blame for Obama, right? Um, you know, we should give Obama flack for you know not uh, for his administrating uh, administration not adequately um making uh, making space amongst the refugee pool for um you know middle eastern christians but that being said it doesn't justify a response from trump to to give christians prioritization um it's it's silly because all of these people are in fear for their lives which is why they're all trying to seek refugee status that's affirmative action for christians because uh, there's institutional discrimination all right i'm done um all right so let me point out that uh well the list of countries um includes no one who has carried out a successful terrorist homicide in the united states i mentioned that earlier in the intro um it does leave out countries that have um that have had citizens um, carry out a successful uh homicide terrorist homicide in the united states notably saudi arabia and egypt um because they're friendly to the united states and just because obama came up with the with a list doesn't mean that the list isn't dumb in fact i kind mean of suggests it, <laughs> it it does seem like a very very impractical list right just looking yeah. at the statistics but i mean i think more importantly right um the 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 idea of banning refugees from coming to the United States is I I would argue a little bit detrimental on on you know putting the policy aside a, a moral level right right um, you know these are people who are trying to to seek a way to 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 avoid death right and here we are trying to prevent them from coming into the United States right I mean we can get into all all kinds of discussions about you know what kind of how many refugees we should be letting in but i think we can agree that the the list in general is just not there, there's no real basis to it and i mean i think if we're going to have some sort of executive order on this or even congressional uh, some sort of legislation it needs to be smarter than this right um but you know i i was talking about you know the morality of this of this policy and why it's silly but um, you know, this does kind of tie in back to what you were saying before about the way that CNN has been covering covering it is that you know if we're looking for congressional policy like talking about refugees separated from their families talking about just purely the moral aspect doesn't really make for good policy decisions. Mm-hmm. There's far better reasons why this policy is silly and unjustified, and we listed it. The countries are uh, are chosen out of the blue. They're they're silly, right? Uh, it's illegally um, it it doesn't hold up in court, right? <laughs> and um, I mean we we see that there's likely no reason to give this affirmative action to to christians even though they may be persecuted um but beyond that um we'd like to talk about that there are actually benefits to immigration even for americans so you know relying on the emotional appeal is cutting out most of the story so with that said we're going to go ahead and segue into um our our topic which is going to be immigration right so um let's start with some of the economic arguments that people often use against against or to uh, argue against immigration uh, because I think we're both in agreement that immigration is a net benefit economically. So the first argument is this idea that immigration displaces American workers. Or, also known as the they, they took our jobs. Right, exactly. Um, so 
many many people that I've spoken to have said that they don't think it makes sense that Trump has free market leanings when it comes to issues like tax and regulatory policy, and yet is protectionist on trade. But what I always tell them is that what they really should be looking at is Trump's immigration policy. People who are protectionist on trade are usually protectionist on immigration as well. And that is, that's what this argument comes down to. It's the same belief in a zero-sum game that economics just isn't. Um, as Alex Noreste Norest, of the Cato Institute puts it, quote, the labor market is not like a crowded skating rink where each immigrant knocks out a native worker. Instead, each new immigrant makes the rink a little bigger, allowing more space for all the skaters, end quote. If that sounds a little too kumbaya for you, consider the case of businesses that are able to expand due to an increase in the supply of low-cost labor. Basic economics teaches us that an expanded business can offer products at a cheaper price, which benefits all Americans. Immigrants also take up low-skill positions, leaving native-born Americans to occupy higher-wage jobs. The result of immigration protectionism, just like trade protectionism, is few jobs protected, but many more jobs killed as, produc as production costs and prices go up and businesses have less money to hire workers. I do think the fear has a justifiable reasoning, though. It's a little bit more complicated than the way that you say it is. Um, you know, with, your economic reasoning is correct, uh, but it, it, you know, economics generally looks at, well, what's beneficial for the long term? There can be tangible impacts on people in the short run. That being said, um, you know, these tangible impact, impacts are felt by small groups of Americans in, in the short run, whereas the benefits are reaped by all Americans in the long run. And mm -hmm. I think it's dangerous to completely ignore the impact of new immigrants, um, but I do think that a stance against immigration only looks at what is seen and ignores the effects that are less visible, right? The people who oppose immigration, and this is both left and right, um, since you know people like Bernie Sanders have opposed it too, uh, but the people who oppose immigration, they've seen the jobs lost by some Americans. And what they don't see is the expanded consumption from immigrants creating new jobs, more goods and competition making prices cheaper, and immigrants starting businesses of their own and directly creating jobs. Well, let me, let me respond to that, because I think it's important to note that immigrants and native-born Americans tend not to compete for the same jobs. You know, it's not, it's not like one immigrant takes, takes a job away that a, that a native-born American would have taken otherwise. They're, they're competing for in a whole different areas. This is a big reason why economists consistently find that immigration has a negligible impact on employment levels, and it actually increases the wages of native-born workers and lower, lowers prices. I think you're absolutely right on that point. I mean, I was just talking about when immigrants actually do, you know, take, uh, heaven forbid, take a, a native-born American's job. But um, I, I, I do think you're right that immigrants and native-born Americans tend to usually compete for different roles. Um, you know, think about it this way. You go to a restaurant, right? Since most people prefer their waiters to speak without a thick accent, um, native-born Americans are significantly preferred as waiters and waitresses, and accents are really, really difficult to get rid of, right? And since new restaurants are going to be created to accommodate the increased demand from the immigrants, these new restaurants will now create a labor demand for native-born Americans, increasing the uh, and increasing labor demand leads to increasing wages. Right, so let's move on to another common uh, argument against uh, immigration, which is that immigration places a strain on the welfare system. So immigrants are actually net contributors to the welfare system due to their payment of payroll and FICA taxes. Immigrants tend to be between the ages of 18 and 35, 
And that's an age group which America actually needs more of to sustain, to sustain programs such as Social Security. Immigrants are also twice as likely to start a business, which increases tax revenue, provides a product to Americans, and often results in the hiring of native-born Americans. I mean, it makes sense that you know, immigrants give more than they they take, right? After all, you know, Americans from zero to eighteen are the ones that are kind of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest drains on the government budget. Right. You know, not not only that, they don't really contribute anything either. Not much. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but but still, abortion bans, eh? No, I'm kidding with you. I'm getting a little off topic here. Uh, We did say we weren't going to debate abortion, but the point still stands, right? With immigrants, not only do we get another worker, we also don't have to pay for their education. They come to the country at a working age and they immediately contribute. I just can't wait to use that abortion line against you when we debate abortion. But all right, so let's move on to some of the other arguments against immigration. One is that, you know, immigrants increase crime rates. Um, You know, they're not sending their best. They're sending rapists. They're sending murderers. Immigrants are actually less likely to commit crimes than native-born citizens. 1.6% of Americans between 18 and 39 are incarcerated, compared to 3.3% of native-born Americans. So if you're good at math, that's half as likely. Also, there is zero credible, credible evidence that immigrants have any effect on overall crime rates. And I think this is especially uh, important when we're talking about like the refugee scenario that that brought up this whole immigration episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, with refugees, right? Most of the most of the time, you you'll see that they they have nowhere else to go, right? Um, yeah, as long as they can get a job, they can make a living, right? It's it seems rather unlikely that they would resort to committing crimes to, in order to get by. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, obviously. You have the numbers there, right? Immigrants are far less likely to to commit crimes than native-born Americans. And it seems extremely unfair that you know people try to make this argument that immigrants are increasing the crime rate. Right. I think a lot of it is anecdotal. Um, right. You know, with so many immigrants that come into the United States, since it's such a big country, it's really not hard to find stories of, you know, immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, who have, who have killed someone. And, well, that's certainly... A concern, and I think that should go into the screening process for you know new immigrants. Um, you can you can check to see if there's any any indicators that someone might be a violent person. Um, I, I think in general it doesn't. This narrative that immigrants are more dangerous than native-born Americans just generally isn't true. Right. I, this is the precautionary principle that the the government really likes to use. The same thing for regulation all the time is is the same idea is that we're so afraid of something bad happening. Right, that we don't really compare the cost to the benefit. Mm-hmm. Right, um, yeah, that's the whole reason regulations exist, and that's that's this whole argument is that look, this immigrant shouldn't have been here in the first place, but we're not really comparing the cost to the benefit. Is that you know, if, inevitably some of the immigrants who come in are are going to be criminals, right? But we already know that it's at a lower rate than than native-born Americans. Not to mention the benefit that they bring right. is is um, quite significant. Right. So here I actually want to play a clip of uh, George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan uh, debating immigration. So you can see, you know, how much change the Republican Party and conservatives in general really have have gone through um, on the immigration issue. I'm going to ask you what you would do about Cuba. But now we're, go- <laughs> now we're going to have some questions from the audience. Yes, my name is David Grossberg, and I'd like to know, do you think the children of illegal aliens should be allowed to attend Texas public schools free, or do you think that their parents should pay for their education? 
Who are you addressing that to? I think you're first in this. Uh, he was looking right at you. <laughs> I said he was. <laughs> Look, I'd like to see something done about the illegal alien problem that would be so sensitive and so understanding about labor needs and human needs that that problem wouldn't come up. But today, if those people are here, uh, I would reluctantly say I think they would they would get whatever it is that they're you know what the society is giving to their neighbors. But it has the problem has to be solved. The problem has to be solved because with as we have kind of made illegal some kinds of labor that I'd like to see legal. We're doing two things. We're creating a whole society of really honorable, decent, family-loving people that are in violation of the law, and secondly, we're exacerbating relations with Mexico. The, cha the, the answer to your question is much more fundamental than whether they attend Houston schools, it seems to me. I don't want to see a whole, if they're living here, I don't want to see a whole, I think it's six and eight-year-old kids being made, you know, one totally uneducated and made to feel that they're living with outside the law, let's address ourselves to the fundamentals. These are good people, strong people. Part of my family is a Mexican. Can I add to that? I think the time has come that the United States and our neighbors, particularly our neighbor to the South, should have a better understanding and a better relationship than we've ever had. And I think that we haven't been sensitive enough to our size and our power. They have a problem of 40 to 50% unemployment. Now, this cannot continue without the possibility arising with regard to that other country that we talked about, of Cuba and what it is stirring up, of the possibility of trouble below the border and we could have a very hostile and strange neighbor on our border. Rather than making them or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. And when they go on to go back, they can go back and they can cross and open the border both ways by understanding their problems. So, I mean, that was interesting. I mean, definitely seems like there's been a lot of change over the years. Um, I think what both George H.W. Bush and Reagan seemed to be indicating was a sort of support for um, pretty much anyone who wanted to come over and uh work hard for a living and receive benefits, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's the mentality of the immigrants that have changed, though. They still want to come to the U.S. and work and make a living. It's really the mentality of Americans that have changed. Um, you know, we've gone from respecting the immigrant work ethic and their culture to, to villainizing it. Um, you know, perhaps this is a fallout uh, from 9-11. Um, I, I think that's probably the most likely cause. Yeah, that's possible. I, I don't. I think back in the '80s, we were much more concerned with the Soviet Union than we were uh, than we were with, uh, especially countries like Afghanistan. It's pretty obvious as we were supplying the mujahideen, not uh, not being afraid of them. But um, I, I, I think there's also there, there could be an aspect of scale to it as well. I mean, the um, especially in the '90s and 2000s, I think there was a real increase in the number of immigrants crossing the border so that that could have contributed to changing our our views on it but i mean i i think i i think the the point still stands though um you know it's it's interesting to to have this look where you know conservatives today and conservatives in the past like what changed over the course of these years right and you know is it is it too late to switch back to the classical liberal stance of more open immigration
Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we can take out of this is that, you know, this there's still a there, there's nothing incompatible with conservatism and be and a more open approach to immigration. Let's move on now to a debate on uh, border security. I, I do have to say, I'm at my best when I'm talking about economic issues, and immigration is really not what I, ch I tend to focus on, so this is mostly just my opinion. But let me start by saying that, to paraphrase Milton Friedman, you cannot have open borders and a welfare state. So I think that border security is beneficial because if it, it is inevitable that if we had open borders, there would be a, a push to provide full welfare benefits to immigrants. And an open offer of American social benefits would be taken up by far too many to afford. Well, I think open borders and a welfare state together are bad. I think you're tackling the wrong side of the issue here. Uh, if you really wanted to, you know, make the welfare state more inaccessible to immigrants and open the borders more. I think I think that open borders is not 100 percent you know, a practical policy at the moment. Um, with the way that you know, our welfare state is structured, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for both open borders and a limited welfare state, rather than just half-assing both of them. <laughs> well, while I sympathize, I'm still against open borders, I mean, even as a concept. I think it's asking for abuse of whatever kind of welfare system you have in place, no matter how small it is. I'd much prefer a less restrictive immigration system, but still one in which the country's ability to set immigration policy is recognized. I understand the concern. Um, I mean, I think your take on the concept is wrong. You're, you're creating limits on immigration because of your fears of welfare state exploitation. And I think the two issues are, you know, while I do think they're tied together, I think it's unfair to use the fact that we have a welfare state to you know, justify limiting immigration. Well, not from its current, not cutting immigration from where it is now. But, right, indeed. But from... And unlimited, yes, yes, I would like to cut it. Okay. Um, but, well, I mean, it's also it's a justification for border security and the right of a government to place reasonable limits on immigration. I mean, otherwise, there would be a huge incentive for people from poorer countries to immigrate here when they turn 65 so that they're eligible for Medicare. Um, I think that it's reasonable for a government to be allowed to place or to be allowed to limit that and ensure that welfare programs are not getting flooded. So, I mean, I think we're making a lot of theoretical arguments here, and frankly, it seems that you know, when we look at the practical policy, we come down on the same side, at least for now, right? We want more immigrants to be able to come in. Uh, that, that's basically it. So with regards to truly open borders, I actually think that's a debate that comes after we've taken the first step, which Trump has taken in the wrong direction. Well, okay, so all the economic arguments I made earlier are really an argument for a cheap and vastly expanded H-1B visa program particularly with your guest worker visas, particularly with illegal immigrants, most don't really want to stay indefinitely, but they just want to make some money. And while we appreciate how immigrants are younger and pay FICA and payroll taxes into entitlement programs, we probably would not appreciate them as much if they got older and started collecting benefits from these programs. I'm okay with immigrants coming and going. Uh, you know, that's their choice. I think that um, you know, fr freedom of movement is, is important to me, I suppose. But also, I think that there's a lot of seasonal jobs in the U.S. that need filling, and immigrants play a very vital role here. Uh, furthermore, many immigrants who come to work in the U.S. leave their families at home, and they actually you know, do want to go home because the culture and the language is so different here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Um, you know, when you're talking about tough border security, it could actually have an impact on the number of immigrants who uh, who 
um, you know, may, uh, it has an impact on the number of immigrants who make it here into the U.S. And uh, but it does have a greater impact on discouraging these uh, immigrants in the U- U.S. from leaving, right? Because if it's so difficult to get back into the country, right? I mean, a lot of these immigrants are paying coyotes to smuggle them in, right? Um, like if it's so difficult to get into the country, right? Then it makes sense that they wouldn't want to leave if it's so hard to get back in. Right. Let me let me get back to border security in a second. But with what you said about seasonal jobs, I think that can still be an argument for, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the exact H-1B system. I just mean a temporary, um, a temporary guest worker system in which people can people are able to enter the country in order for the main purpose of finding employment. I think that's that's where we get the most benefit from immigrants. I think it's from the from their ability to come in and fill low-wage jobs in particular. Um, and I think that's something that uh, we could be expanding. Um, but as for uh, border security, I do think there is a security benefit to having some sort of process to enter the country. It ensures that we are at least catching some people who come here to do us harm. And while I don't think that a border wall is the most efficient way to accomplish this, I actually think it's probably the least efficient way possible. Um, I think there are much cheaper ways that the southern border could, could be policed. Um, namely, there's there's plenty of um, just sensor systems. You can have like fiber optic systems. Um, you know, there's there's even just fencing. I, I think that, like I said, I think a wall is extremely inefficient. But there are um, there are proposals that have been put forward that would accomplish this in a much more cost effective manner. I mean, in addition to what I was saying about you know, this discouraging immigrants from from wanting to wanting to leave the U.S. in general, I mean, there's also been significant numbers of cases of violence on the border. I I think that this is um, you know, something that is is an unintended side effect of you know this heavy policing, but basically um, you know strictly enforcing the border. Uh, has um, you know, led to a number of shootings um, across the border. And in fact, just a couple of months ago, the Supreme Court decided to hear a case in which a 15-year-old boy was shot and killed by a Border Patrol agent. Um, and the boy was on the Mexican side of the border and, in illegally speaking, a no-man's land, right? And the case is still ongoing, so we don't know exactly where the, the law comes down on this. But this isn't a rare occurrence. In fact, there's a report commissioned by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the actual agency that does it. And they, they uh, this is in 2013, and they themselves came to the conclusion that you know, many of these cases didn't reach a level of reasonableness to use deadly force. And I think that a lot of this comes back to the fact that we enforce the border so heavily. We're kind of back to where we were in the beginning of the episode here. I think you're being CNN right now. Ouch. Well, hey man, if the shoe fits. I mean, like, you're you're saying that we shouldn't have border security because a 15-year-old boy got shot. I mean, this doesn't address whether or not border security is a valid concern. I mean, well, you're certainly correct that that kind of violence on the border is unacceptable. There's no reason why it can't be addressed with an improved and more efficient border security system, as well as improved oversight. I mean, I don't think that's that's something inherent to having security on the border. I mean, I'm only discussing this as part of the the cost benefit analysis that that we're weighing uh, right now, right? Um, so you know, l- like I mentioned, there we're we're weighing the potential benefits of of immigrants coming into the U.S. to to work, right? With the you know, potential harms of you know per- perhaps there are some immigrants that come in that are criminals, right? Um, and you want the security around to to 
to to catch that right mm-hmm. um you know you also mentioned as a harm like you know older immigrants coming in and um you know taking from the welfare state um and i'm only bringing up this this kind of border violence issue as an added harm right um i think the cost benefit analysis is extremely important and you know border patrol accountability uh, you know how how would we go about you know making sure that that doesn't become such a huge issue well, I think that independent agencies are always a good way to accomplish that. Um, I mean, I'm, my point is just that I don't think that is something that is necessarily something that you get because you're securing the border. I mean, we don't we don't have a ton of TSA agents shooting people when they come in through airports. That, that like that's there are clearly ways that you can. Not to say that the TSA is an excellent organization, but my point is that. Um, <laughs> My point is that, you know, there there are we have organizations where people are monitored when they come into the country and don't get shot. Right. I, I'm just saying that there's no there's nothing that's it's not necessarily true that because you are watching people who come in or because you have some form of modern monitoring that people are going to get shot. I mean, you, I, I think you are right there. Um, a lot of it comes down to the way that um, we've tried to militarize the border. Right. Right. Um, and that that's had an effect on on why these uh, why this violence happens so often. Um, but, you know, the point the point still stands that um, you know, we should be weighing the costs and benefits of of um, of border patrol and border security. Right. Yeah. You know, how much harm are we actually do, doing for how much benefit are we actually you know getting out of it? Like, are we actually using it to catch uh, preemptively catch people who are criminals? Right. Is it actually having a good effect? I think all of that needs to come down into the cost benefit analysis, not just a quick, you know, gut reaction from Trump saying, hey, they're not you know, Mexican. Mexico is not bringing their best. Right. Uh, like, I, I think we actually need to have a good cost benefit analysis done my, into how much into how much like immigration actually affects us. My impression was so much better. I, I <laughs> do not doubt that. <laughs> anyway. I kind of wanted to extend this question a little bit more. Um, so at a certain point, right, when should we allow an immigrant to stop being an immigrant and become a resident, right? With the current immigration process the way it is, there's little way for a Mexican person with no family in the U- in the U.S. to get a green card. Uh, even if they did want to live here, or work here, or contribute to society, right? How, how are immigrants different from residents and at what point do we try to draw that line? Right. I I think that there's definitely a criticism to be made here of our immigration system as it stands. Um, I think, as you say, it's much too difficult to actually become or to actually go through the immigration process. Um, However, I do think that there is a cultural aspect to citizenship that comes with being in the United States for a longer period of time. Um, I think that the right overemphasizes this and I think the left is overly dismissive of it. Um, but our culture does benefit from different perspectives and, multi- and multiculturalism. But there's also core American slash Judeo-Christian values, which make America unique, uh, namely the importance of entrepreneurship and the rights of the individual. Um, of course, I, get, I risk getting into a debate on Western civilization in general here, but I do think these are important things. I, I mean, the, the cultural aspect, I think, is, is important, but... You know, an immigrant who, when you're talking about an immigrant on a worker visa, right, they're, they're, they have the intention to head back home, right? Um, 
when you're talking about an immigration who wants to live uh, an immigrant who wants to live in the u.s though you know these are immigrants who will try to learn the language right um they're, right. they'll try to accustom themselves into into u.s culture right and you know especially tying this back into the whole thing that started this whole episode you know the, the whole refugee issue right um the like the refugees are probably the people who have the most incentive to fit into the u.s right mm-hmm. um because they are the people who who don't have anywhere else to go right i mean i think that's that's a reason to make the green card easier to get but i don't think it's necessarily a reason to speed up the the in the entire the process of becoming a citizen i mean i i think we're in agreement that a green card is much too hard to get in the united states but but i think that the the argument i'm making is that the the cultural um, the cultural aspect of becoming um, assimilated to some degree, um, as I as I suggested earlier, it's not it's not that we want everyone to just become you know waspy clones of what they what they once were, but you know you you do want some degree of assimilation into core American values. Um, I think that that comes with time, and that makes it that means that there is some benefit to having um, the process be be drawn out but not restrictive in that sense i I can understand that sentiment um i think that i i think that there is um a significant difference between somebody who who has just arrived and somebody who has been here for a while right i just think that the way it currently stands right it's too difficult to become that immigrant who just arrived and is aiming to get that green card right yeah um that and you know we should be making that process easier the green card to citizenship is is sort of a um i would say it's a a bit of a separate process right um that you know the immigrant can choose to proceed with themselves right there's a lot of benefits to becoming a u.s citizen um but you know that that's up to the immigrant themselves but actually becoming the resident is the hardest part of it well let me let me branch off what you said about the the green card issue because i think that this sort of ties into one of the one of the common things that people think about um, about our immigration system, which is that we should be letting in high-skilled people. Like, our our country only benefits if we're letting in a doctor or someone who's going to make a ton of money. Um, you know, sort of like you're, you're collecting, like, playing cards and you want the best ones. You don't want, like, you know, some low-level card again. <laughs> I, I, I think that this is this way of thinking of our immigration system... Um, sort of as we got into earlier, I mean, illegal immigrants who come here and fill these low-wage positions are benefiting our economy. They're, they're allowing people who otherwise would, native-born Americans who otherwise would have been in these low-skill positions, low-wage positions, to move into medium-wage positions and medium-skill medium positions. I mean, not to mention, there's there's a bunch of other spillover effects. I mean, low. Um, you're talking about immigrants who are now you know, taking over as, say, nannies, for instance, so that um, you know, other women who would be normally taking care of their kids can now go pursue both their right. careers and their family life. Right. Right. Um, you know, you're talking. You're talking about uh, you know, immigrants who are who are taking uh, taking jobs in you know rural America, working agriculture. Right. Where most most native-born Americans are starting to move into the cities. Right. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing immigrants fill these niches, right, where normal native-born Americans aren't going to be filling them. Right, and I think I think that's one of the one of the things we need to take into account with our green card process, because right now it does have too much of a focus on on high skill or or something unique about you. I mean, 
if you talk to people who have gone through the immigration process, they always talk about how in order to justify their green card or in order to justify a visa that they get, they always have to say something unique about them. You know, why why should I be allowed in, but not 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 the sixty other people in line behind me? And I think I think we should be focusing less on that, less on that sort of uniqueness idea, and more on just you know what will benefit our society and what will benefit our economy. Right now, one of the things that will benefit our economy is letting in letting in people who will take up these low wage jobs. I don't I don't think there's much of a real solid argument that um, that immigrants who are taking low wage jobs are hurting our economy. They're they're actually benefiting it. So I think that's something we need to take into account with green card discussions. All right. Well, we'll have to end things there. Um, thanks for tuning in on the issue that we so far have had the least agreement on and yet by the end, the most agreement on. Um, as always, make sure, please be sure to like us on Facebook if you haven't already to give us a warm, fuzzy feeling. And make sure to tell your friends about that podcast you listened to that had a catchy tagline. Uh, make sure to email us also at libertiesandpolicies at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or memes that you like, um, I'm always partial to a good Bernie Sanders meme. So see you in a couple weeks. Government is the problem.